0: I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Yesterday, I had a really fun experience. I was asked to do an interview on another podcast, uh, a great UFO podcast called Our Strange Skies. I was really flattered to be asked on the show. It's uh, it's one of the better respected UFO podcasts, I believe. I know I know I have a lot of respect for it. I like the work that the host does, Rob Christofferson, and um, so I was very pleased to be invited to be on the show. We had a great interview. We talked about all my favorite things, UFOs in general, specifically. We talked about my book, The Close Encounters Man, biography of astronomer and UFO authority, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And we also talked about Star Trek, uh, where uh, basically my writing career began. So, fun interview, fun interview. But at one point, uh, Rob asked a question that really made me think. He said, okay, Mark, so tell me, where's sort of the intersection between your interest in the UFO phenomenon and writing for Star Trek? And I thought, huh. What an interesting question, and it, it's actually a great question, and nobody has ever asked me that before, and it struck me as kind of funny that that has never actually come up, so I really had to think about it for a minute, and they both interests definitely appeared in my early childhood, like around age five, six, seven, somewhere in there. I was born in 1960, so when I was born, UFOs were already a thing, And um, I took an interest in them, as I've told on other chapters of this podcast. I got interested in them uh, early on when my mom was uh, working as a librarian. She would take me to the library with her, and I started reading uh, books about UFOs at the library. And then, of course, I've spoken at length about the fantastic early 1960s science fiction anthology TV series, The Outer Limits, which used to scare the living daylights out of me every week because every week they had a newer and scarier space alien um, invading Earth. Very traumatic for my young mind. The interest in Star Trek came a couple years later. The show didn't premiere until 1966, so that was a couple years after I would have had my first exposure to um, UFO, those UFO books. And I don't know. Somehow they just sort of meshed. The UFO stories got me all curious about space travel and and alien intelligent life forms, all of which folded neatly into Star Trek because here was here was Star Trek uh, envisioning a world that it, that involved all those things that I had become so fascinated with. So that was that was kind of a cool thing to think about. But after I was done talking with uh, Rob about, about this, this intersection between my interests, I thought of an example, a real example, from the original Star Trek series that sort of ties into this whole idea of how UFOs and Star Trek got sort of intermingled in my head. In Star Trek, the original series, uh, episode 20 of season one, They did an episode called Tomorrow is Yesterday, and this episode, I always thought it was a pretty fun episode. I just watched it a few minutes ago. I still think it's a pretty fun episode, although watching it now as as an adult, (laughs) there, there are a few things that I found a little off base about the episode, but we'll get to that so as part of my theme with this podcast of, of uh, dealing with Star Trek topics, talking Star Trek, uh, I think it's kind of fun to have a way to, to, uh, to mesh UFO talk into Star Trek talk, at least for this episode. So I'm going to do things a little differently with this episode. I have a copy of my book, The Close Encounters Man in my hand because I'm going to read some excerpts from it because they these excerpts really tell the story. Now to, to, to start this story we have to go back in time to 1948 when UFOs were first starting to become a thing after the famous uh, after the famous sighting in Washington State in 1947. In 1948, the U.S. Air Force had its first close encounter with a UFO. And I tell the story in the book because it's kind of a, it's a key moment in the history of UFOs, and it's also a really fascinating story for a lot of reasons that I think you'll see very soon. The background is an Air Force flight of four Mustangs being ferried from an airbase in the south up to an airbase in the Kentucky, Ohio region And what happened to the pilots of those planes along the way? One pilot in particular named Thomas Mantel. So I'm going to read from my book, Chapter 3, The Crowded Sky, which begins on page 39. If you have my book, feel free to follow along. So here's how Chapter 3, The Crowded Sky, begins. It appears metallic, of tremendous size. I'm trying to close in for a better look. This was the last transmission the control tower operators at Godman Army Airfield received from Air National Guard pilot Captain Thomas Mantell on the afternoon of January 7, 1948. Mantell, flying at about 15,000 feet, had just broken away from two other P-51 fighters pursuing a brilliant aerial object that had been sighted by nervous officers at Godman Airfield, Fort Knox, Kentucky. In the last moment of the chase, Mantell alone was able to maintain visual contact with the massive object, and he was determined not to lose it. Mantell advised the tower at 3.15 that he was going to approach the target. The radio silence that followed lasted three minutes. In that time, Mantell's fighter could have covered about 18 miles, but no one knows how close it ever came to the object of its pursuit. The next anyone saw of Mantell's plane it was screaming down out of the sky in a tight spiral, and in seconds it had disintegrated into a farm field in northern Kentucky. Mantell's wristwatch was shattered at 318. The Air Force called it Incident Number 33. It was the first time on record that a military pilot had lost his life while chasing a flying saucer, and it took the phenomenon and the Air Force into entirely unfamiliar territory. According to the Air Force's final report, the affair started at approximately 1320, when Kentucky State Police and Fort Knox Military Police radioed Godman Tower to report, quote, a large circular object from 250 to 300 feet in diameter, unquote, had been sighted by multiple witnesses over Mansville, Kentucky. The observer in the tower, Technical Sergeant Quinton A. Blackwell, verified with Army Flight Services that the object had also been sighted over Irvington and Owensboro, Kentucky, and by 1350 it was visible to Blackwell and the rest of the tower staff. The object was still in sight from Godman Tower more than 30 minutes later when a quartet of Air National Guard P-51 Mustangs approached from the south en route from Marietta, Georgia to Standiford Field in Kentucky. After verifying that the Army did not have any experimental aircraft in the sky that day, Technical Sergeant Blackwell radioed flight leader NG-869, Captain Mantell, and asked him and his group to try to get close enough to the object to identify it. One of the four planes was low on fuel and broke off, while Mantell and the other two pilots headed south on an intercept tangent. One of Mantell's wingmen famously radioed Godman Tower to ask, what the hell are we looking for? No one was able to answer that question with any degree of certainty. The military police at Fort Knox first described it as, quote, a small white object in the southwest sky. It appeared stationary, could not determine if object radiated or reflected light. Through Binox, it appeared partially as parachute with bright sun reflecting from top of the silk. However, there seemed to be some red light around the lower part of it, Of the tower crew at Godman Airfield, one witness thought it, quote, resembled an ice cream cone topped with red, unquote, while another said, quote, it would seem that it was at least several hundred feet in diameter, unquote. The commanding officer, Colonel Guy Hicks, reported, it was very white and looked like an umbrella, I thought it was a celestial body, but I can't account for the fact that it didn't move. I just don't know what it was. That Mantell was in the area at all that day was a bit of a fluke. He was in command of three other Air National Guard pilots who had volunteered to be flown from Kentucky down to Georgia to pick up four P-51s that had been left behind on a previous exercise. Their mission was simple, ferry the planes back at low altitude to their home base at Stanford Field in Louisville. When Mantell received the request from Godman Tower to change course to identify the object, he and his flight were nearly home. But perhaps the break in routine was welcome to Captain Mantell, for he wasted no time in turning his fighter around and heading off in pursuit. There was just one problem. The ferry mission was planned for low-level flight, so Mantell's plane had no oxygen. When he set off after the object, he knew that he was climbing much higher than he should without oxygen, "'but as a veteran combat flyer, he had the reflexes and nerves of a fighter. "'He loved the P-51, felt he was the master of it, "'and flew not carelessly but like an aggressive fighter pilot,' "'said his best friend, Captain Richard Tyler, "'in his accident report for the Kentucky Air National Guard. "'I firmly believe that if he thought he had any chance of catching this object, "'he would have pursued it knowingly to his death.' the Army Air Force concluded that Captain Mantell passed out due to a lack of oxygen at 25,000 to 30,000 feet, at which point his plane leveled out and started its descent. It then began a gradual turn to the left because of torque, slowly increasing degree of bank as the nose depressed, finally began a spiraling dive which resulted in excessive speeds causing gradual disintegration of aircraft, which probably began between 10,000 and 20,000 feet. In an affidavit filed with the Army Air Force, a William Mays of Route 3 Lake Spring Road in Franklin, Kentucky, reported hearing an airplane above making, quote, a funny noise as if it were diving down and pulling up, but it wasn't, it was just circling. After about three circles, the airplane started into a power dive, slowly rotating. It started to make a terrific noise, ever-increasing as it descended, Mays reported. It exploded halfway between where it started to dive and the ground. The wreckage scattered in a north-to-south line for close to a mile. Crash investigators found that the canopy remained locked, indicating that Mantell made no attempt to abandon his plane, either because he was unconscious during his descent or had suffocated at 30,000 feet. He left behind a wife and two young boys, one six years old, the other 18 months. Now I'm going to skip ahead a few pages and resume the narrative. What had happened to Mantell between 3.15 and 3.18? Had he caught up with the object in that time? Perhaps even tried to engage it? Because of those three minutes, flying saucers had suddenly taken on a menacing, deadly aspect and a calm, decisive response from the government was in order. Scrambling for calm, decisive responses was to become the Air Force's stock-in-trade where flying saucer incidents were concerned, and sometimes it worked. In Mantell's case, there was a recent precedent that gave Project Sign what seemed like a convenient opportunity to write the incident off as pilot error. Because an Air Force pilot had recently chased Venus in a well-publicized incident, It was easy enough to apply the same cause to the Mantell case. He had died while mistakenly pursuing Venus. The press and the American public found this explanation lacking. To make the Venus story stick, Project Sign needed a professional astronomer to validate its conclusion. But the task of recruiting such an expert was daunting. Where in central Ohio could the Air Force find a professional astronomer who already held a high-security clearance and could go right to work with a minimum of red tape. Well, at that point in the book, this is where Dr. J. Allen Hynek appears on the scene to investigate the case. Here's what happens next. Back to the book. Once he had signed on as an official consultant to Project Sign, Hynek started right in pleasing his new boss, Captain Snyder. He examined the evidence in the Mantel case and, without hesitation, agreed with the standing verdict. Quote, it appears to the present investigator, in summing up the evidence presented, that we are forced to the conclusion that the object observed in the early evening hours of January 7, 1948, at these widely separated localities, was the planet Venus. Unquote. Heineck wrote in his April 30th report to Project Sign. And now we're going to skip ahead again to a moment when Project Blue Book, Dr. Hynek's employer with the Air Force, brings on a new commanding officer, a man named Edward Ruppelt. And this is what happens when Ruppelt starts to look over the Thomas Mantell case file. When the Air Force Office of Public Information started to receive new requests for information about Captain Mantell's 1948 crash, RuPelt reopened the file and found that one of the initial investigators was still in the area. He called Dr. Hynek at Ohio State and set up a meeting for the very next day. Dr. Hynek was one of the most impressive scientists I met while working on the UFO project, and I met a good many, Rupelt recalled. He didn't do two things that some of them did, give you the answer before he knew the question, or immediately begin to expound on his accomplishments in the field of science. In his report for Project Sign nearly three years earlier, Hynek had declared that Captain Mantell had died while chasing the planet Venus. But Ruppelt wanted to review the entire incident. Much of the original material in the file at ATIC had been damaged by a catastrophic coffee spill and was no longer legible. And Hynek didn't hesitate to retrieve his own notes on the case. He looked over his records and then did a truly remarkable thing. He recanted. Heineck had been responsible for the weasel-worded report that the Air Force released in late 1949, Ruppelt wrote, and he apologized for it. What had changed since Heineck had declared that Captain Mantell had been chasing the planet Venus? The answer is really quite simple. Month after month, year after year, the UFO phenomenon persisted. For several years I was saying there was nothing to it, Heineck explained. I thought the whole thing was a fad, a craze, and would pass from the scene as fads invariably do. Back in 1948, when I first started, I would have taken just about any bet that by 1952 the whole matter would be forgotten. It was the persistence of the phenomena, not only in the United States but over the world, that finally grabbed my attention. Rupelt's research had shown that Hynek was correct about the azimuth and elevation of Venus, the afternoon of the Mantell incident, But the planet's brightness was an issue. Heineck had computed the brilliance of the planet, and on the day in question it was only six times as bright as the surrounding sky, Ruppelt wrote, explaining, Six times may sound like a lot, but it isn't. When you start looking for a pinpoint of light only six times as bright as the surrounding sky, it's almost impossible to find it, even on a clear day. To Ruppelt's surprise, Heineck admitted to an error. He didn't think that the Mantell UFO was Venus after all. To find out more about why Dr. Hynek changed his mind about the Mantell incident, please read my book, The Close Encounters Man. It's all there. Now, here's the tie-in with Star Trek, though. I'm going to read you another passage from my book with very little explanation up ahead. I'm just going to jump into it cold, and we'll, we'll see how it all sounds. I think we've got a real UFO on our hands. That was the call of an Air Force intelligence officer before scrambling a fighter to get a visual on the blip that just appeared out of nowhere on radar. UFO is picking up speed and climbing, the fighter pilot reported upon getting a radar fix. I'm going in closer. I can see it now, he said a moment later. Whatever this thing is, it's big. Within moments, the base lost contact with the plane and it disintegrated. If this reads like a replay of the Mantell crash of 1948, that's because it is. Only this time the drama was being played out in an episode of Star Trek, a topical new science fiction TV series that premiered with great fanfare within weeks of Hynek's 1966 meeting with the Hills. The series, the first American TV show to depict a multicultural, multi-gender, and multi-species space crew facing complicated dangers in space with thoughtfulness, tolerance, and reserve, would rewrite the book on how science was depicted in popular culture. From its humble beginning as one of the lowest-rated series on network television, Star Trek planted the seeds of modern geek culture and inspired a generation of children to pursue careers in science and work for NASA. The first season episode, Tomorrow is Yesterday, Traded openly on the Mantell case to tell its story of a 1960s American fighter pilot whose fate is altered when he pursues a massive UFO. Only on TV, the UFO is actually the Starship Enterprise, and the pilot doesn't actually die. Instead, Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, and the resourceful crew of the Enterprise beam the pilot aboard their ship an instant before his jet breaks apart giving him an unauthorized peek at the future and thus upsetting the timeline. How the Enterprise and its crew find themselves over U.S. airspace in the 1960s is explained by a black star and a time slingshot, two very shaky concepts that somehow sound altogether logical and even inevitable when explained by Mr. Spock. The real point of interest here is that when Star Trek premiered in the 1966-67 TV season, Creator Gene Roddenberry and writer Dorothy D.C. Fontana recognized that UFO lore had a very strong hold on the public's imagination. And they were not afraid to build an entire episode around a UFO case from nearly 20 years earlier. Clearly they knew the story would resonate with their viewers. It would seem real. It comes as a pleasurable surprise that Captain Kirk himself knows a bit about 20th century UFO politics. If I remember my history correctly, he says upon realizing that the U.S. Air Force considers the Enterprise a UFO, those were all dismissed as weather balloons and sundogs, explainable things, at least publicly. I find that reference of Captain Kirk to 20th century UFO history really, really funny and and really kind of cool. So that's it for my book there you get this really interesting tie-in between ufos and star trek there are more there's a deep space 9 episode called little green men in which the stars of uh, deep space 9 find themselves back in roswell in 1947 and we will be taking a look at that in an upcoming episode of far-fetched you can be sure of that but in the meantime A few more comments about this star trek episode i i always really liked this episode i thought it was a very clever time travel episode uh the the storyline heaps complication upon complication and just as kirk and spock and his crew think they've solved one complication another one arises so it's really engaging storytelling uh i've always been a fan of dc fontana's writing um and the fact that she was a, uh, a female writer in a world of male writers is a huge a huge accomplishment for her. That said, there are a few strange things in this episode that I never noticed until I just screened it earlier today. Let me start with this. We all know from watching the show that Captain Kirk reports to Starfleet Command. Well, in this episode, and this is only the 20th episode of the first season. So they're still finding their legs, right? They're still they're still figuring out how they want to tell their stories. But here we have Captain Kirk telling Uhura to get in touch with Starfleet control. <laughs> I heard that and I was like, "What? Wait, what? You mean Starfleet command, don't you? What the hell is Starfleet control?" And it turns out it's not a single slip it gets mentioned again later on in the episode somebody mentioned starfleet control so i found that i found that very enlightening i also love the whole idea that the enterprise travels back in time at the beginning of the the episode due to what captain kirk describes as a black star of high gravitational attraction and the enterprise of course falls prey to this gravitational attraction and uh, this will produce lots of scientific pseudoscience mumbo-jumbo later in the episode. Another strange thing, right up there with Captain Kirk referring to Starfleet control. Later on, when, they, uh, when Kirk and Spock uh, beam this 20th century Air Force pilot into the Enterprise, Kirk is giving the, the pilot a little bit of an education on... Uh, on what life is like 200 years in the future in in the Federation of Planets and in Starfleet. And Kirk says, We operate under the command of the United Earth Space Probe Agency. And he doesn't say this, but I spelled out the acronym. It's UESPA for what it's worth. I don't believe that this agency has ever been mentioned before or since in any kind of Star Trek lore. And it's just a really dumb name, United Earth Space Probe Agency. Um, It's a real head-scratcher. The worst part of this episode is it's so sexist and it just blows me away since it was written by D.C. Fontana. But I suspect that Gene Roddenberry played a hand in how some of the scenes in the script played out. First of all, there's a scene where this 20th century pilot is walking down one of the aisles of the Starship Enterprise and he and Captain Kirk walk past a female crew member, and if you recall from the original series, most of the time the female crew members wore incredibly short uh, miniskirts or mini dresses. So Kirk and the pilot walk past this woman in a mini dress, and the pilot just sort of does a double take and very clearly looks at her legs. And as he does so, this really kind of. Sassy, sexy horn music comes in the soundtrack. Totally, totally awful and inappropriate. But that's not the worst of it. Then we have a scene where Captain Kirk and Spock and the 20th century pilot are sitting in the conference room consulting the ship's computer. Now, most Star Trek fans will remember that the voice of the computer in almost all Star Trek shows up until her death the voice was done by Majel Barrett Roddenberry, Jean Roddenberry's uh, widow. But not in this episode. In this episode, for some bizarre reason, the computer voice is its female, but it's taken on this really sultry, kind of sleazy tone to it. And it signs off everything it says. It, it constantly refers to Captain Kirk as dear. Captain Kirk tells the computer to do something and says, right away, dear, which causes Captain Kirk no end of discomfort and embarrassment. And about halfway through the episode, we find out what the story is behind this bizarre voice. Spock explains to the 20th century pilot that the Enterprise recently had to have its computer system overhauled And they had the work done on a planet called Signet 14, which Spock says is a female dominated planet. And when the female computer technicians at Signet 14 got their hands on the enterprise's computer system, they decided that the computer system lacked personality. So they decided to give the computer a personality which consists of talking in a sultry voice and calling Captain Kirk dear. I can see where it was intended as a lighthearted little joke, but wow, it just bombs. It does not work at all. It's it's horrific. And in the end, Captain Kirk threatens to have the computer um, basically disassembled and scrapped. And that's the only thing that will get the voice... uh, That's the only thing that can persuade the voice to actually start behaving like a real Starfleet computer voice. Another disturbing conversation comes in later when Kirk and Spock and the 20th century pilot are trying to decide what to do with the pilot. If they keep him on the Enterprise, then there's no way to explain his disappearance from Earth in 1966. But if they send him back down to Earth... To resume his normal life, he may disrupt the timeline because he has gotten this—he's gotten a glimpse of the future. He's gotten a tour of the Enterprise. He's seen the transporters and the warp drive and phasers and everything. So, so Spock and Kirk and actually Dr. McCoy is in on this conversation. McCoy and Kirk start talking about how, well, if we kept him here in the future, we could possibly re-educate him or retrain him because Kirk points out that this pilot is around his age and in their society of the future he would be irrelevant he would be useless <laughs> it's really a shocking conversation really bizarre stuff to be coming out of Kirk's and McCoy's mouths but they seriously have this conversation they're seriously considering re-educating this pilot to make him fit into the future the the only other thing well a couple of little things there are a couple of very uh, brief mentions of little green men in this episode uh, again going for the cheap laugh but there's also a moment where after kirk after kirk shares his knowledge of ufo history where he says those were all explained away as sun dogs officially spock sort of chimes in and he says well you know if these 20th century folks get a get a get their hands on the enterprise it's going to be impossible to explain it as anything but a UFO. And he says, Spock says, possibly alien, definitely destructive. I'm not sure how I feel about that line, but uh, it's, it's of a piece with the rest of my critiques, I think. just It just doesn't, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't ring true with these characters or with the ethos of Star Trek. But I'm glad I watched it. I enjoyed the good stuff. I just didn't enjoy the weird stuff. And, and seriously, the, the female computer voice is about as bad as it gets. I feel for DC Fontana. I can't imagine that she intended the episode to go out exactly the way it did. Well, there you have it. That's my, uh, that's my story of how UFOs and Star Trek come together in my personal timeline. Next episode, I think, unless I come up with some interesting more stories, I think I will get back to finally um, reading some more of my Star Trek pitches. I think the next time up, though, I'm going to do something a little different. I have, in addition to all the full-length story treatments that I have been reading on Farfetch'd over the last year and a half, I also have a whole stack of one-liners, just simple log lines from which I developed the stories that I would uh, pitch to Star Trek. So I'll have a sheet of paper that'll have maybe five, six, seven, uh, one sentence log lines. It'll give you an idea of sort of how how the idea begins and how it germinates. And in some cases, I actually write down comments about what the producer told me about why he wasn't going to buy my story. <laughs> Those are always fun. What I heard a lot over the, all the years i pitched to Star Trek, one thing I heard a lot over and over again was, I'd pitch a story to the producer and he'd say, wow, he'd say, you know, we already have a story dealing with that issue, but he said, I'm just, I'm really disappointed because he said, you're treatment of the idea is so much better than the script we're already working on which was a great ego boost but after you've heard it like a half a dozen times it gets to be a little tiresome i'll just leave it at that at any rate that's what we have to look forward to in future episodes of far-fetched thanks for joining me this has been mark o'connell i've enjoyed uh, spinning my yarns and i hope you'll be back for more